Yo, what's up, AP World History? My name is Travis, and welcome to the sixth episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In today's episode, we will be talking about industrialization and its benefits. Thank you, and enjoy. So, what we have today, and we're going to kind of, we're going to move pretty quickly these next couple of days, because we have... Has several things to talk about, I guess, but some of, a lot of this is stuff that you've learned before, um, whether you had AP Human last year or Honors World or anything last year. You would have talked about industrialization, the changes in agriculture, and those kind of things. So we can move fairly quickly through some of this. What I really want to get over these next couple of days is um, a couple of different things. One is the changes that happen in society, the social changes as far as, you know, whether it's the up, or I guess the coming up of the bourgeoisie class, or whether it's the development of the working class, because those create an entirely new dynamic, economically speaking, and they create an entirely new dynamic, politically speaking. So we need to definitely talk about the new social classes that are arising here and how that manifests itself or how those manifest themselves and kind of how they redefine themselves because the role of the aristocracy is about to change, the role of the bourgeoisie, the peasants, we have a new working class that's going to come into play here and that really shows up politically in the 1800s and economically. We have a lot of changes here, which you already are somewhat familiar with through talking about the Enlightenment and those kind of things. And then the next thing that I want to do over the next couple of days is do a comparative approach to industrialization in the different regions, or at least the different industrialized regions. For example, industrialization in Western Europe, places like England, France, Netherlands, Belgium, well, I guess we can loop the United States into that in some cases, they all have a different type of industrialization process than Russia and Japan and some of the other areas here. And so we definitely want to do a comparative approach to the different regions that are industrialized and how they handle that. And then we'll talk about some of the reactions to industrialization in places like China, who doesn't really industrialize until mid-1900s. Some of the uh, reactions to places like Japan, places like the Latin American areas. Um, we'll talk about different responses to industrialization in these areas. Because obviously the Atlantic world has gone through a major transformation in the last few decades, decades. Whether it's the destruction of the mercantile empires and the American colonies, um, the creation of new republics across Latin America, trying to answer the question of how they actually fit into this larger economic cycle or larger economic system of the Atlantic trade. Alright, so there's a lot of things that we're going to talk about here throughout the 1800s, and we're going to provide the context of industrialization. Alright, now Friday, you're going to be doing the DBQ about, it'll be about Manchester, and it's mainly about the theme of urbanization, which is a huge theme with industrialization. And so we'll take a look at that Friday. Um, this will be another chance to practice the DBQ, um, get it scored, and Hopefully we'll do better with this one than the last one to improve all of our scores and those kind of things. Not that we all did terrible last one, it was just our first try at it, right? 
So another chance to get better at that kind of stuff. And hopefully you've been able to practice with the uh, documents we've put online so that you can master those happy skills and those um, out using outside evidence skills, organization, all the stuff that you got feedback on your last one, that's what you should really be focused on in prison with this one. You have a question? Yeah, what if, would you think it would be fair to say that during the Industrial Revolution, uh, the aristocracy changed from just the rich families to large business owners? Uh, not necessarily, because the it's not necessarily the aristocracy that's doing all the industrialization. And those large business owners primarily are going to become the bourgeoisie class. And the aristocracy still pretty much have the same dynamic they had before as far as their wealth and their power come from their land. That's not as wealthy and powerful as it used to be. In a feudal system that we're moving away from now, thanks to the French Revolution and some of the others, the aristocracy had all of that power because the power was lying in the provinces, in the rural areas. Well, the industrialization movement is going to be more of an urban movement. So the people that are going to benefit from that are going to be this emerging bourgeoisie class. They're going to become the factory owners, the business owners. They're the major benefit, well, the beneficiaries of industrialization. And we'll talk about that as we go through here. That's one of the things we're going to talk about today. Okay? All right, so um, we have a couple different things here. Let's talk a little bit about life before industrialization. And I'm going to be going pretty quickly through these slides, so it's not going to be one of those things you can write everything down on the slide, and it's not designed to be that way. I didn't want to take some of the stuff off, though, because I wanted you to be able to reference it later on if you needed to. But just a heads up there, we're going to be moving through some of these slides pretty quickly. Now, what we have here, uh, life before industrialization. And I'll kind of talk about this a little bit, and then we can move on to what we have. We know that this is primarily agricultural. We do have the emergence of, well, I guess the commercial revolution that we talked about with the period four and the mercantile empires and the growth of commerce and everything there. So it's not 100% agricultural, but if you look across the world, even in places like China, that's you know, still probably the leading manufacturer of goods up into period four there, it's still an 80-85% peasant society. And agriculture is still a huge cornerstone of all the societies that we have here. So um, that's a major thing. Now Europe has a lot of trouble keeping up with some of the er other areas, agriculturally speaking. The influx of these new goods and new, um, well I guess the new diet that's coming from the new world has helped as in Unit 4. But agriculture is difficult, particularly in places like England, uh, the United Kingdom, and some of these more northern western areas where the soil gets rocky and uh, depleted and the growing seasons are shorter, particularly in this little ice age that has started here in Unit 4. So um, it's a kind of a difficult system. Now, what we're seeing, the major agricultural system across Europe at this time, is kind of this open field system. And it's pretty much the dynamic that exists between the aristocracy and the peasants exists on this open field system. Because really what we have is, if I'm an aristocrat in Europe coming into this time, how am I making my money? 
off my land, yeah, but how? Am I going and physically working on my land? Peasants work the land, that's why they exist, right? Now, how do I make money from that? Sell the stuff they're making, yeah. Yeah, especially in Western Europe where you kind of have more of a peasant mentality instead of a serf mentality. In Eastern Europe, you have serfdom still, the robot, that is pretty much, we own these guys and we own whatever they produce. In Western Europe, it's more we tax these guys. They pay taxes for everything we're trying to do there. And that's how we collect our money. And everything else, we let the peasants pretty much operate with a certain level of autonomy as long as they pay their taxes. I'm not really concerned with how efficient they are with agriculture. Well, that kind of evolves over a couple centuries into this open field system where we have a communal situation, this huge amount of land. Us as peasants, we're gonna grow enough to support our families and those kind of things. But there's really not a lot of motivation to overproduce and to be very effective with our production because we're not gonna keep the benefits of that anyways. That's gonna to go to the feudal lower pay taxes, and that kind of stuff. So it's kind of just do enough to survive type mentality. The land is fallow in a lot of cases because they've used up all the nutrients. The crop rotations they have are not very efficient. So I guess the moral of the story here, agriculture coming up to this time is the model of inefficiency in Europe. Part of that is because of the soil and part of the climate they have, but also they're just not very, they're not very smart, but they're not taking a very scientific approach to that. When the scientific revolution happens, that's gonna to start to change, all right? And we'll get to the domestic system here pretty soon. But what we start to see happening here, and this is in conjunction with the scientific revolution that we talked about a few chapters ago, but there's a change in mentality in Europe. There's a change in thinking in Europe, particularly with the Western European areas. And we have a scientific approach, a new scientific approach to really all things. And if we have a problem such as food shortages or inefficient land, that kind of stuff, well, there's probably a scientific answer to that problem. And so we start to see that science applied to agriculture. And we're gonna see an agricultural revolution that takes place. And it's, I guess, the second one that we've talked about. The first one was way back in the Neolithic time periods, right? But this is a huge jump forward in the production of food, particularly in Europe, because they have a few issues there and they learn how to solve them. One, efficiency of peasants. Well, we can create a few little simple machines and a few things that are gonna help make these peasants more efficient whether it's uh, the seed drill from Jethro Tull and, um, or different things that are better crop rotation systems, um, all these different things, because we have a few issues. And this happens really in two places, one in the United Kingdom and two in the Netherlands, all right? Because if you think about some of the problems the Netherlands have, well, what do we know about the Netherlands first? Why are they even called the Netherlands? That's never land, but good point, Kevin. <laughs> and you realize you just made the podcast with that comment, right? <laughs> Every day. 
<laughs> Alright, what's, what's interesting about the Netherlands? sea level. So how, did that, how does that happen? Because they're a coastal area, right? They're right on the coast. So how do we have land that is beneath sea level that's on the coast at the same time? Is that even possible? How does it not flood? Yeah, what they call them. Because if we have sea level here, this is your sea, those are waves. Yeah, those are dams. They call them dikes. Right, and the Netherlands, in order to get more farming area and more different, you know, ex I guess expand their territory, they will build a dike out here. They'll pump the water out of this area, and all of a sudden we have more land available. Now here's the problem: What's at the bottom of oceans? Sand. Is sand really great for agriculture? Is it full of nutrients and that kind of stuff? Not really, right? So we have to figure out a way to turn the sand into fertile soil. They call that the sand to soil project. All right, and the, all of these different land reclamation acts and those kind of things, all right? So that's what we're seeing here in the Netherlands. Now we have a new scientific approach on how to solve this problem of lack of fertile soil. So they're gonna start to try to figure out how to do this. Think about that for a second. What do you have? All right, I'll get it, thank you. All right, so how are they going to solve this problem? What's that? Put down their own soil from where? Oh, they're going to go steal soil from other countries? We're talking about an act of war right now. Dangerous talk, man. I want to get mad at some of these kids when they're starting to get dirt. Do what? Yeah. That's interesting, maybe, but he hit rock pretty quick. It's a new technique, yes. They don't use it, then why do we go to the problem of making dams to reclaim it? And we've got all these, you know, what, what are they growing here? They've got all these tulips they want to grow, right? What? Why are they growing tulips? Is that what you're asking? Why? Well, this is a great contextual question. No, this is not an agricultural benefit. This is a religious thing. Because if you go, you pull up a picture, somebody get your little Google machine now and pull up a picture of Holland. Tell me what the first picture that comes up probably is. is. It's either going to be one of two things, a windmill or a tulip field. It's both, exactly. Why, is, why are they so known for tulips? If you get this one, I'm going to be super impressed and you're going to get a big high five. From Kev. 
we talked about TULIP before? Norse mythology. It was an acronym. I'm just going to tell you because we're going to waste time now. But um, religiously, back in the uh, Reformation, Calvinism, John Calvin used the acronym TULIP to describe Calvinism. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Pretty much talking about predestination. Okay? Well, the Netherlands becomes all Calvinist. And so they start really growing TULIPs. The thing is, TULIPs are not indigenous to Europe. They're from like Turkey and some of the area down there. So they had to develop a new strain of doing this and that becomes one of the ways that the Netherlands gets a lot of their wealth is through selling tulips on the marketplace they have. It's one of the first economic bubbles that we see. The prices of tulip bulbs goes through the roof. Alright? So that's why we have tulips everywhere there. So if somebody asks you why tulips are all over the Netherlands, that's why. But either way, they have to find a way for better agriculture. So they start figuring out in the sand to soil project better ways to fertilize the soil. They figure out that if you plant certain things like soybeans, turnips, and some of these other things that grow in the ground, it actually <coughs> replenishes nutrients into the soil. And so now the crop rotation that they have is something maybe like corn on this field, wheat on this field, and then soybeans on this field, and instead of just leaving this field fallow and open, and kind of just letting it try to get nutrients back naturally, which is a slow process, we're actually putting nutrients back into it, we're fertilizing the soil. And we're gonna get something out of that because we can use these products for, we can sell them, all right? So now we can rotate, so corn will go over here, wheat over here, soybeans over here. So we're constantly replenishing the fields every few years. So now we can turn this soil into, or the sand into soil. And we know about fertilization and that kind of stuff over time. Question? Wait, so they planted it in the sand at first? They start doing things like that. Um, they'll try to create as much of a soil sand mixture as possible and then over time as, as they're planting beets and turnips and those kind of things and they also figure out about you know manure for fertilizer and that kind of stuff they can turn this into soil over the course of a few years and then you have some fertile areas to, to farm and the Netherlands do this out of necessity because remember we're in the little ice age growing seasons are getting shorter for places like the Netherlands and places like England and these other areas agriculture is getting more difficult so out of necessity, they start figuring out better ways to do it. We don't see this happening across the Mediterranean and these other areas because their growing seasons are still really long. But these areas are not. Okay? So that being said, there is more value that can be had with these lands in the United Kingdom. All right? So instead of using peasant labor anymore, I'm a British aristocrat. I figure out that if I take control of my land, I can work it a lot more efficiently. I'm not going to physically work it myself, even though I might some. These British aristocrats are real go-getters. 
you know, the Protestant work ethic and everything there. But I can mobilize and organize my peasants more efficiently if I take control of my land. So it's not this old feudal thing of I'm just going to collect taxes and get passive income here. I'm going to take control of it because with this agricultural revolution, this has made possible the idea of commercial farming in Europe. That's a big change. Commercial farming up until this point has always been where? In the Americas, right? So in the Americas, that's where the sugar and cotton and tobacco and all that is. And it still is over there. They're not going to be able to grow that in England. But they can grow things at a much higher scale that they can use for things like gin and these other big things that make a lot of money there. So after these British aristocrats figure out that they can really make good money off their land, we're going to start to see them enclosing it. And this is called the enclosure movement. And what this does is, it pretty much is me taking control of my land, closing it off and saying, I really only need these peasants. These guys, it's been nice knowing you, but you're kicked off my land. And you guys say, wait a second, we pay our taxes, we do all this kind of stuff, why are we getting kicked off? That's not fair, that's not legal. And then me as a British aristocrat say, you know what, it might not exactly be but I can go make it legal because I'm a parliament, I'm a member of parliament. So I'm gonna go propose in parliament, hey, I say we pass this enclosure movement, meaning I can control my land, kick off whoever I want to. Everybody says yes, because they are all also what? British aristocrats, and they all want the same thing. So it's now legal, bye-bye, you guys, thanks. Where are you guys gonna go? To America, no, can't get over there. Yeah, there's not really that many cities. All right, we're going to start to create cities. That's where they're going to start to gather together and that kind of stuff. But they're not really going to have a lot of jobs to do because I mean there are cities like London is a, you know there's some big ones there. But there's not really many like what we think of. It's not like China that has a lot of big huge cities at this time. All right, but they are going to start to collect in these towns and cities are going to start to grow a little bit but you're not really gonna have anything to do because peasants, they're good at farming. You're not really involved in any of the trades. You know, in an urban economy, you have the blacksmithing guilds, the leatherworking guilds, the textile guilds. If you're not a part of those, you don't really have a part of that economy. And it's hard to get in those because to join a guild, you know, you're pretty much born into a blacksmithing family. You spend the first 30, 40 years of your life as an apprentice, learning the trait, and then you become a master. It's a long process. These peasants don't have access to that. So they're kind of stuck here, gathered, not really in the new yet. We'll get to that in a little bit. But that's the enclosure movement, and that happens in England. All right? So we have the new uh, agricultural innovations, that kind of stuff here. So the process of what we have, scientific revolution, agricultural revolution, have created a situation where there's more food available. And whenever there's more food available, according to people like Thomas Malthus and these others, what's going to happen? Population booms. So we're going to see a huge population explosion that's going to happen here in the late 1600s, in the 1700s. Population is growing, which it already kind of is because you know, the diets have gotten better. People are 
living a little bit more with the scientific revolution and advances in medicine, that kind of stuff, uh, the influx of goods from the new world, we're going to see a steady population growth. Agricultural revolution puts a pretty big boom in that. So we start to see that. Now, here's the next thing, because we're getting to the point of industrial revolution, right? How does population explosion help lead to industrialization? Kind of. I mean, they can get to cities, but how does that lead to industrialization? Christian, what do you think? Yeah, but I mean, you're still going to have a lot of people involved in agriculture, and you're having more agricultural output than you had before. So, how does that lead to industrialization? How does that lead? Because what is industrialization? What what am I talking about when I say industrialization? Yeah. The act of making goods. Okay. A surplus of goods. All right. What else? Yeah. It's just like increasing the efficiency of how you get products or resources. Okay, that's a good way to put it. Increasing the efficiency of how to manufacture goods. Okay. Maybe machines starting to take over some of that labor. Yeah. Yeah. Since it, the population explosion leads to the energy revolution, it's <coughs> to have more energy and to have more ways of producing. Okay. And why does it lead to the energy revolution? Because the energy revolution is really where we're going to see the start of the industrial revolution. Technically, the industrial revolution is the changes in manufacturing that take place. And that's made possible with the energy revolution. But why? Yes? Exactly. So what we're starting to see here, and there's two different causes here, but with the population boom, all of a sudden, there's a higher demand for goods. And it's not like these peasants that got kicked off their land can really go and make a lot of this stuff because they're not guild members, and they're not masters of their craft. So these textile guys and these all these other people that used to be able to keep up with the labor and can't do that anymore. They can't make, you know, if I used to make shirts for this half of the room, now I've got to do it for this whole thing. I can't keep up with that. So the old way of doing it is out of date. And then what's the other side? Because we have two problems here. One is we can't match the demand with the current production. So we're going to have to solve that problem. We're going to use science to do that. What's the other side? There's two sides to economics, right? Yes? You need to find a way to make more jobs because there's so many people that know that. Yeah, well, the factories will do that for a time here. Quality, yeah, that's an issue. It's another context thing here. Economics. We have demand, and we know demand is sky high here. What's on the other side of economics? So, we've recently had a pretty big change in supply. 
With what? Yeah, well, we have the mercantile empires and the mercantile systems, and when you start to apply scientific and agricultural revolutions to this, all of a sudden we've got all kinds of stuff. You know, the cotton gin is being created here, so we can process more cotton than we've ever been able to do here, right? So we have supply and demand both going through the roof. Normally, if you see this in a in an economic indicator or whatever, an economic chart, a lot of dollars are going to be made here, but they're not because the missing part here is production. All right, so they're going to start to figure out better ways to produce because if I'm a businessman in England at this time and I've got all this cotton that's piling up in my warehouses and I've got all of this demand for shirts, or let's just say textiles in general here, I'm going to find a way to make my supply match my demand, and the better I have to figure out a better way to produce it. That's where industrialization comes in. All right. Now, they go through several different ways of doing that. We have the cottage industry that starts picking up, and I can start using some of these pests that used to work to start doing some of my job for me if I'm a textile maker to start um, producing some of this cotton into thread and all the kind of laborious parts that's not the skilled labor, all right? And then um, we're gonna have all these other kind of things, the putting out system, the cottage industry, and that kind of stuff, they're gonna go into that. So here's the dilemma that we have. Now, the question is, why does this happen in Europe first? We've already kind of answered that, right? Europe has the mercantile empire, so they have the influx of goods. They're going through a population boom. They're gone through the agricultural revolution. So we have that population boom, and we have all this. And the scientific approach is greater in Europe by this fifth period that we're talking about here, by this time period, than really anywhere else. We saw that change taking place in Unit 4, right? So we have a new scientific approach here. Now, where we're really going to see this happening is Great Britain. So the, probably the better question here is, why Great Britain? Well, there's a couple different things. We know Great Britain has all this cotton, because most of this is around the textile industry here, right? So they have all this cotton that they're producing and that they're bringing in, and they have all this demand for all these goods. So England has a couple other advantages as well, too. One, it's an island, so you pretty much are never far away from the coast. The transportation is pretty good across England. There's rivers and harbors and all that kind of stuff. They have a pretty good merchant marine that's available because of their mercantile empires. They have all of these different advantages that some of the others might not have. France has some of that. The Netherlands have some of that. They have their colonial empire, which they've really taken a lot of... Well, they've spent a lot and they've fought a lot to expand that. You know, they've recently taken half of France's colonial empire and all that kind of stuff. They have natural resources like iron and coal that are readily available, which you'll see that across some of these other Western European nations as well. Because, I mean, if you're building factories, what are the machines made out of? Iron, right. If you need to power these, what's, uh, how are you making the steam? 
you're burning coal, right? So you've got to have those things available too. All right. Also, in England, you kind of have a unique aristocratic class or a unique bourgeoisie class even in the fact that these guys are empowered. So they can use government to their advantage. They can pass laws like the enclosure movement. Um, they have the joint stock companies. You know, we, we know that it's a different situation in England politically than other places in Europe. So that creates a class, an entrepreneurial class, that can really help foster the growth of industry and those kind of things. You have labor that's available because what's that half the room going to be working on? Nothing. Nothing, right? So we can stop, now put them in the uh, coal mines. We can have them um, uh, getting iron for us, working in factories. So we can start to produce things much bigger. Now, one thing with this right here. With the British government helping, that doesn't mean that the British government is forcing this because we're going to talk later on when we get to like Japan and we get to Russia the industrial process of both of those areas is pretty much government mandated state mandated it's forced in China also that's not going to be until mid 20th century but um, this is kind of a painful process in a couple of those areas Russia and China particularly and England it's not like that this is government supported but not government mandated. This is kind of something that's happening on its own autonomously. And that's something different about the growth of industrialization in Western Europe and the United States than what we're gonna see in Japan and Russia. Because when we get to like the Meiji restoration in Japan, that's pretty much the government saying, you're gonna do this. You're gonna industrialize, we're gonna build railroads, we're gonna build this kind of army. And if you're not on board, then there's, you know, there's punishments for that. Russia, it's even, and we're talking Joseph Stalin here, who, if you don't do it, they have gulags, they have all this kind of stuff for you. And it's a painful process. Government seizing land and all that kind of stuff. It's a change. So this is not like that. Western Europe and England, this, these areas here. Industrialization is fostered and supported by the government, but it's its own individual thing. Yes? So I'm just curious. Well, the joint stock companies are something that have been around for a while there. Yeah. They, they are another manifestation of the unique situation in England. Because in the age of mercantilism, the British and the Dutch, the way that they approached mercantilism was through joint stock companies. Because they had this perfect alliance between economy, and government. The merchants of the day were also the politicians, the members of parliament. So when they needed something done to better their businesses, they could pass the laws in parliaments. And they had the joint stock companies, that kind of stuff. As opposed to the absolutist mentality with mercantilism. The same is true here with industrialization. The businessmen of the day that are creating these factories, securing loans, and that kind of stuff, are also the politicians, the members of parliament. So when they need something done, a bank loan or whatever it might be, they can pass that through parliament because they're the ones making decisions there as well. So it's different. 
or it's the same as what we saw with joint stock companies early on. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. The last bit kind of. Okay. It's not necessarily that joint stock companies lead to industrialization. It's that they are the same manifestation in mercantilism as what we're going to see industrialization, the same benefits of parliament. Okay. All right. So, um, also, this is overlooked sometimes, but England has a geographic advantage that others in Europe don't, which is when Napoleon is running wild across Europe, conquering, taking over everything, England gets to look from across the English Channel safely and securely because Napoleon's not going to make it across there. So they can do this kind of stuff while the rest of Europe is in, at war with the French Revolution, Seven Years' War, all those kind of things. Okay? So, like we said, this is all centered on the textile industry. Um, we start to see the cottage industries going forward different um, advancements and those kind of things, leading to the factory system, which is made power by the energy revolution of steam power, which is why when people say, you know, when, you, when does the industrial revolution begin? Well, with the invention of the steam engine, which is kind of a couple different things. Thomas New Commons was early 1712, something like that. Really when uh, James Watt and uh, Arkwright and some of these others make a more efficient steam engine that you can apply to factories and those kind of things, that's really when we see the Industrial Revolution take place because it's starting to be applied to making textiles. That's where the factory system is born. Alright. And then we have another set of problems that come up. Because once we've solved this issue, now our production has made it to where supply and demand can equal each other. But now we have a new problem. What's our new problem? Our finished goods here. Our our output's going up. Now what we're going to do with this. What are railroads going to come in for, Kev? Right. We got to get these goods from the factory to the people. Right. So railroads are going to be a huge part of. Connecting cities, connecting factories to harbors, and we're going to start to apply this steam power to, you know, better locomotives, uh, steam ships, so that we can efficiently get these goods around the world. And that's kind of the transportation revolution that's associated with the industrial revolution. All right, and we're going to have better iron making processes, the Bessemer process, to make better steel that can make uh, bigger ships. Um, a more purified iron for bigger, better, heavy-duty machines, uh, huge buildings we get to the 20th century. So we're going to see a lot of that uh, transitioning here. So you can look at a map here of railroads and see which areas are more industrialized than others. You can see a theme here, right? Industrialization here in Great Britain starts to spread to the coast and to Germany, but not much down here. 
I wonder why that is. What do you think? Maybe. How? Explain. Because that, that is a root that some people look at. Um, well, like, uh, the Italian city state for most of the Catholic, and like Spain didn't, they like only accept Catholics, mm -hmm. like, like they kicked everyone else out. And we know, kind of going back to the Reformation time period, and I'm not saying that, you know, this is not an outline by goodbye. Say, oh, Coach Arnold said Catholics are stupid. That's not the case. But the focus on education is different in the Protestant world at this time and the centuries leading up to this and the Catholic world, right? So that is something maybe. You have a more literate society up here, and a lot of the scientific innovations are coming from up here. So that is one reason, possibly. What else? Not religious-based. Okay, that slows this, but remember, Napoleon is con conquering all this area, too. So, why would this get more industrialized than down here? Could it be because they're focused more on the uh, South Americas than they are their own plan, I guess? I don't know if that's really true. Maybe Explain, Kev. Huh? Well, you're exactly right, though. If you look at the Mediterranean area, you have longer growing seasons, a better agricultural situation, so they don't necessarily need to apply as much of the scientific agricultural revolution here, and therefore they don't need experience a lot of the population boom that maybe what's going on up here. Okay, so that's another reason. All right, anything else? Maybe access to some of the cold deposits that are up here. That's a big difference. And iron. So all of these are a combination. But one thing that we see coming out of this, no matter what the reason is, this area industrializes much earlier than this area. All right? Russia's not till the 1920s. Spain is a long, slow process later on, and they're still kind of struggling with some of this. You know, it's still kind of an agricultural, touristy type economic situation. Same with Italy. Northern Italy will industrialize where Southern Italy won't. Ottomans go through a whole issue in the late 1800s. But it's a process here, whereas this is more of a natural phenomenon up here. And part of it is probably proximity to England as well. All right, so uh, later on as we get to second round of industrialization, just to compare the first and second round, this one's going to be a little bit more focused on electricity uh, products that are being made. We have automobiles coming into place. So you have oil and all that kind of stuff, rubber, uh, plastics, different things there. Um, we'll save society for tomorrow. Hello, my name is Ethan. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Tomorrow we'll be talking more about the industrialization. Thank you.